Hi. I realized the other day that I always say hi, guys, when I'm doing these episodes, and I'm not talking to multiple people. I'm talking to you, who's probably listening by themselves. So, hi, you. I'm Jade Iovine. If you've been here before, welcome back. And if this is your first time, welcome. Tell Me About It is the show where I force my guests to commiserate about our anxieties, insecurities, mistakes, our rejections, heartbreaks, and the many, many bloopers of our very imperfect lives. So is it just me or is anyone else having so much anxiety about the world opening up again? I know it's controversial, but I swear I wake up in a cold sweat every night just knowing that my favorite excuse ever is soon leaving me and going to force me to actually tell people the truth when I cancel on them, which I won't do, so it'll probably just force me to come up with another lie, but it's just giving me anxiety. I mean, there are parts of me that are excited, too, like, I'm not a serial killer, I swear, don't hate me, but I just, like, there are so many things that stress me out about it, like, I have nothing to wear to anything that I'm going to. Like, I feel like I started the pandemic with one style, and I came out of this chrysalis a new woman, and this new version of me just hates everything that the old me spent money on. Anyway, speaking of being terrified to go out in public, I started this new thing. I had this genius revelation the other day that, you know, medication and talking about my anxiety on this show and in therapy, I decided they weren't enough and that I needed to try something new. So I decided that I'm going to embarrass the anxiety out of me. So, you know, when I feel myself starting to have a negative thought or negative self-talk, or I feel myself starting to go down a shame spiral, what I've promised myself is that I have to say out loud, stop, right when I feel myself starting to have that thought. No matter who I'm around or where I am, if it's a library or a party or whatever, I have to say stop. So like, If I'm in the line at CVS and I feel myself starting to think about the word I mispronounced yesterday in a meeting, or I feel myself start to compare myself to someone on Instagram, or the deadline that I probably am going to miss, I audibly, like out loud, have to say, stop. And the people around me are going to look and think I'm crazy, but it's like, I think if I just humiliate myself enough, and I do this enough, then I think that there will be enough negative reinforcement where like it'll change the neuro pathways that Amy Chan talked about in the last episode in my brain and like scare my anxiety away. That's the plan. So if you wanna try it with me, let's give it a whirl. I think it might work. Call me crazy, but I think we should try it. And if you do try it, DM me or text me or leave me a voicemail and we'll commiserate together about the embarrassing moments that we'll have. Today's episode is with Mandana Dayani. Mandana is a hustler. She's just this determined go-getter, which is extremely apparent from the second you meet her. As someone who's had an extremely full professional life, which you'll hear about in a second, we talked a lot about imposter syndrome. We talked about working with friends and how hard it can be, why vulnerability can be so scary, and why we should definitely get more comfortable disappointing other people. Mandana Dayani is the creator and co-founder of I'm a Voter, a nonpartisan public awareness campaign that aims to create a cultural shift around voting and civic engagement. She is also the co-host of the Dissenters podcast with Deborah Messing, highlighting the activism efforts of their heroes. Mandana has reinvented herself professionally several times, starting as a corporate attorney, then working as a talent agent, before working with stylist and entrepreneur Rachel Zoe to launch the Rachel Zoe Collection. She also helped produce and regularly appeared on their hit show on Bravo, The Rachel Zoe Project. And after six years, Mandana joined Everything But The House as an executive producer of its HGTV show. She is an immigrant from Iran and lives in Los Angeles with her husband and their two daughters. She immigrated to the U.S. as a religious refugee and credits that as one of the most formative inspirations behind her activism. Let's get right to it. Here's Mandana Dayani. Hi, Mandana. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited we get to do this. There are so many things that I, when I was researching you, that I found out that I didn't know before. First of all, the past two weeks, I've spent probably four hours on everything but the home. Really? <laughs> yes, because I'm moving, and it was, like, something I just came across, like, on an article. I had never known about it before, and honestly, like, I'm such a monster. Even now, I'm like, I really don't want other people to know about it because it's so – right? Like, it's yeah, so it's really, great. 
I spent, I would spend so much time just going through these auctions and the crazy stuff you would find. And it was really fun. Can you kind of tell us a little more about it? I stopped working there when I started I'm a Voter. I, I, I was an executive producer on the show that just came out on HGTV about it. And that was really, really fun. But it's a double-sided marketplace, essentially, like the first real company to take estate sales and make them digital. So yeah, created like an auction platform and you would have, you know, people all around the country servicing homes and taking those items and creating estate sales. And then you would put them up for auctions and everything started at a dollar and you would have like anything from a kitchen magnet to a Warhol on the same page. And yeah, it's amazing. People would just bid and it was was really fun and crazy. So how many years were you there? A little over two years, two and a half years. I left to really when that all started, as I, as I was trying to begin it and kind of realized that was what I wanted to be doing. And I didn't know that you're a huge Bravo fan. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. I, I swore off Bravo for a really long time. Stop. How? After, cause just because like I did Bravo. So it was right. very- strange place. And it was a very tortured experience. I used to watch you on the Rachel Zoe project all the time. And that was such like a ridiculously strange thing to be thrown into when like you didn't really <laughs> want, I didn't want to do it. Right. So like now you're on this show. And- right. I almost didn't remember that it was you, you know, like you seem like you've lived so many different lives. Like I was yeah. like, I can't believe that was her. Well, I just, you know, I always kind of had categorized myself as like the smart person who's behind the scenes and does the work. And now you're just kind of being thrown into this thing. And I didn't really know how to behave. And Mm -hmm. so I think in so many ways, I was trying so hard to emulate like a smart person who was serious. And I just think sometimes I came across so mean. No, like that was your role. You were like the, like business minded, (laughs) like fashionable, you know, like smart girl. But I, you know, I, I took... I took a hiatus from watching Bravo and then, you know, life gets hard and shit gets hard. And then I realized that is my happy place. And what am I doing? And so, you know, you end a day and you put the kids in bed and you're just tired and you're like, I'm going to have a glass of wine and watch all of the housewives. Yes. What's your favorite one? Like, do you watch them all? And I say that without any judgment because I watch them all. I I go in and out of them. So like, I'll take breaks from them. I, I don't know. God, my favorite right now is... I uh maybe New York. Okay. I New York know. is New York and Beverly Hills probably and Jersey. Like I don't know why there's something just awful They're about so me that good. loves Jersey. Even Dallas is great. Dallas is great. I don't know. They're all Atlanta's amazing. They're all amazing. It's like they're national heroes. I don't know what we would do without So them. next time you come on, we're gonna do a like a Bravo trivia <laughs> challenge, but we'll skip that for today. Done. I put this stool like below my feet. And do you know what a squatty potty is? No. <laughs> Have you ever, you've never heard of a squatty potty? No. What is that? It's like a stool that you put under your toilet, basically, that you put your feet oh, on. Oh, yes, I do know. My friend's daughter was teaching me all about this. She was very, <laughs> it was very important to her. But right now but I feel like I'm it. sitting on a squatty potty. That's amazing. Anyway, so I want to start by talking about your 20s. So you are 39 right now, right? Yes. Okay. So everyone has some adverse reactions when I first talk about your 20s because it's such a formative time in your life where you're just like constantly messing up and you don't know what you're really doing and what you're supposed to be doing. So I wanted to know from you, you know, who were you at 25? I, oh God. So I mean, 25, I I think is when I started practice. So I started my career as an attorney. I worked at a big Mm -hmm. firm and then I did that for a couple of years and then I worked as a talent agent. So putting career aside, I think me as a person, my twenties, oh God, that's a hard question because I I think when I look back on my twenties, it was all about like who I was pretending to be. You know, I think my whole life, I'm such a people pleaser inherently, right? Which I think is a good and terrible quality to possess. And so I think so much of my life and some of it, I think has to do with my upbringing and, you know, being raised in like an immigrant community and all of those things, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But I think I spent so much of my life trying to emulate perfection and like be the model citizen and daughter and do all the things that everybody wanted me to do that I never had any real understanding or emphasis on what made me happy or who I was or who I wanted to be or who like the places that made me happy or the things that made me happy. It was like, okay, this is what is expected of me. How do I achieve and overachieve the expectations? And 
you know, I was dating a horrible person, I think right before then. Um, and I don't know, but I wasn't in a place where I understood those things. I was just kind of going through the motions and not lost because I felt like I was doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing, but very unfulfilled in many ways and knowing something is deeply missing and seemingly perfect on the outside. And I think that was always this, the weird duality of like life. Yeah. So you just basically like didn't pay attention to your emotions or like there wasn't this huge emphasis on what made you happy. It was just kind of like you did things. I didn't think it mattered. I didn't think it was part of the equation. And I, I know this sounds so weird, but it was never, it was like, okay, you're supposed to do this, to do this, to do this, to get to this place. And I think I really lived my life understanding what that sequence was and what that calendar was and how to build all the things that I was supposed to build. And no part of that equation was like, hey, let's create some checkpoints and be like, is this making me happy? <laughs> right. Well, especially growing up in an immigrant household, as you said, you know, there isn't a lot of emphasis on find a career that makes you happy. You know, it's kind of like you have to do what you have to do. You know, there's not. Do you want to be a lawyer or a doctor? I mean, that was the conversation. I was like, I really don't like science, so I'll be a lawyer. And I, I did think I, I always had like greater aspirations to to work in politics down the road. I didn't mm -hmm. even know what that meant because I didn't know anyone that did that. It just sounded amazing. So I was like, okay, yeah, the law path makes sense. I will pursue that path. Um, but I didn't ever like stop to think whether I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't right. even care. It was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. How did your perfectionism manifest itself? Like, how were you unfulfilled? Like, if you were in a bad relationship, what did that mean? So, you know, it, it, coming to, the, to this country when you're like, I was six years old, seven years old, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. You um, came from Iran, right? Yes. Okay. And so I, a big part of that experience is, is fitting in. Like, we don't speak English, we have no money, and all of us, you know, we went to New York for a couple of years, and then we came to LA because someone told my dad there's good public schools here. And so we kind of like bought a house on like the outermost section of Beverly Hills. Okay. And so now you're like, don't know the culture, don't know what you're supposed to be doing. You're living in Beverly Hills. And you're like, what are these people? What are these things? And you adopt this survival instinct of like, figure it out, get along with everybody, fit in enough so that no one notices that you don't belong here. And so you create this I guess it is a version of imposter syndrome, but I really always looked at it as like survival tactics of just like, how do you get through everything? How do you get through this? And then how do you get through this? And then how do you get through this? And in a weird way, I felt like I was always holding my breath to get through the thing. And then I got to the next thing and then I was holding my breath to get through the next thing. And I really reached this point when I was like 35 years old. And I was like, I have gotten all of the things and I have never exhaled. Like I got the career and then got the better career and then got the other career. And I still haven't exhaled. I still haven't been like, oh, this is where I want to be because I don't, I don't even know what I was doing. Um, and so I, I don't know. I think so much of that journey was, was doing the things that I thought I was supposed to do to fit in or to excel and to get ahead um, and figure out like the shortcuts to success because I had no path. Like nothing had been emulated for me by anybody else. Right. So there was basically one side of you that you showed the outside world that was a perfectionist and an overachiever and you assimilated to everything else. And then there's the inner you or like the true you. When did those two finally meet in the middle? Like when did you start to feel like you could shed that outer layer? So I, I think it really was creating I'm a voter. Mm -hmm. So how would you describe I'm a voter to someone that's never heard about it before? I Am A Voter is a nonpartisan civic engagement organization, and our entire mission is really around changing the culture around voting, showing people how exciting it is, inspiring people to vote and register to vote, and inspiring their friends to register to vote, and really creating a community that is empowered around the central truth, which is mm -hmm. that our entire democracy is dependent on our participation. Because up until then, I've had so many successful like careers, right? Like however other people define success. And I was really happy doing those things. I mean, producing a fashion show was amazing, right? Like doing those things was obviously super cool. And I'm so grateful for those experience. But I also don't think I was honest at all. And I was never vulnerable about any of the things. I was just like keeping it together, playing the role. And, and in a weird way, like, all of those jobs I got, I didn't totally know what I was doing. So I was still right. 
like figuring it out as I went along and kind of playing into this like sure just survive and succeed which by the way in, in some ways isn't a bad thing I think right. it, it's, it's weird it's a double-edged sword and, I, and we should talk about that but I you know when so the whole kind of origin of of that of finding out the voter I was working at EBTH I was not happy and I had just had my second daughter and I was home and I watched, you know, I knew I wanted to do more in politics. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I started talking to people and I was like, this is what I've always wanted to do, but I don't know what that means. And I have a job and I have all these other things. And I took very preliminary meetings. And then one day I'm, I'm holding my daughter who's a few months old and I'm watching TV and I see the first videos of, you know, the children being separated from their parents on the floor with aluminum blankets. And it was like all of my insides imploded. And I was like, what happened to our country that I love? Like I was raised so patriotic, right? Like America saved my family, saved our country. This is the greatest place in the world. This is where everyone's welcome. And I was like, this is broken. And I got on a plane with no agenda and was like, I'm going to go to Texas because I need to see this camp. I don't believe it. I never do shit like that. I'm so like meticulous and organized and I don't just plan a trip. And I'm like, there has to be a reason. Everything's so calculated. And I went and I was like, oh my God, this is insane. And I came back and I kind of resumed those conversations with different people. And I was like, how do we fix this? And every single person was like, well, if you want this change, if you want this change, if you want this change, we need more people to vote. And that really started the journey of me, you know, building this with these incredible women who I who I built the campaign with. But there was a moment where I was like, I am going to leave my job. I'm going to disappoint every single person in my life because I'm on this path to building this massive career as a tech entrepreneur. I don't even know what any of that shit means. And this idea of like, I'm going to disappoint everybody was so, so hard for me to come to terms with. This idea that I was entering something that I could have very easily failed because I had nothing to fall back on, right? I was vouching for everybody. I was like, I need you to come build this thing with me. What if it sucked? What if it failed? Like all of those insecurities of me not knowing how to fail, having to be vulnerable, having to go to all of my biggest contacts and say like, trust me, this is going to be real. Like we're going to make a real impact. And then being like, but are we, you know, all of that was, was so hard. And, and that was the first time where I had to be really vulnerable and kind of own like, I actually don't know that what I'm doing, but I know what I believe in. And I know that there's an opportunity to make a difference. And I know that if anyone can do it, it's going to be us. Right. So you believed in it. I did a hundred percent, but that was the beginning of realizing that like, it's okay to be vulnerable, right? It's okay to admit that you don't necessarily know what you're doing and it's okay to be scared and it's okay to disappoint the people that you love. And so much of that was very, very, very new for me. Yeah. So being vulnerable professionally, you know, is one thing, but being vulnerable personally is another. How did you learn to do that? I think it was really the conviction that I knew what I wanted to do and I knew how happy I was doing it. And that was the first time I felt like I was in my own skin. I knew exactly where I was supposed to be, that like everything I had learned at all of these jobs that made no sense, all made sense because they all converged. All of those skills and all of those contacts and all of those relationships and everything I had worked for could all make a huge impact. And I was so happy that I was like, it's worth whatever it is, whatever it is, whether it works, it doesn't work, whether I disappoint everybody or not this is what I want to be doing. This is where I want to be. This is where I feel like I'm supposed to be. And that to me was more important than anything else. And I think it's the first time I chose myself. Oh, yeah. So you were 35, right? At the time? Something like that. Yes. 35. Okay. Yeah. When you started, I'm a voter, right? Yes. Or, okay. Yeah. So it was that you say like, that was the first time that you really felt like I'm choosing myself. I'm going to be vulnerable and like take this leap, but I don't know I could fall flat on my face. And that's the first time you ever took that kind of risk or were you always comfortable taking risks like that? I was always comfortable taking risks because I knew I could figure things out and none mm -hmm. of those things were me mm. at the center, right? So it's like, even you work at a law firm, like the law firm's not going to collapse. You're a talent agency. Right. Like you have talent. You go to work in a fashion brand. Like I got to work for the, you know, Rachel and Roger were incredible. And like, mm. there's so much integrity and IP there. That's not going to fail. Like there was always a security of like the, in the, the structure around me, I think. I don't know. I mean, that's kind of what my takeaway is now when I reflect back on it. I start thinking like, oh, maybe that gave me the comfort. I don't know. 
Yeah. So you come off, you know, extremely confident because you just like you're an executor. You know, you have an idea, you do it like you've had all these incredible lives and incredible jobs. Do you think this may be a weird question, but do you feel like confidence comes naturally to you? And do you think there's a difference between confidence and like self-worth? I think they're probably interrelated. I think because of my parents and how amazing they are and what they endured to get us here and give us this life and this shot at happiness with just being kind of thrown into the wilderness, like at the age of, you know, there's so much change and it was so hard for so long, right? Like we're in LA, we don't have a car. We don't know what we're doing. No one speaks English. How do you find an apartment? You know, that, that kind of like hustle of life of just figure it out, figure out how to apply to school. Like, I didn't know anybody that went to any college that could help me get in and like write my essay. Like I just, you just had to figure it out. I think when you combine someone with passion and common sense, that's like literally the two things I hire for all the time. I never care what anyone's resume is. Like if, if I meet someone and they're super passionate and I feel like they will just figure it out, I will hire that person. And I knew that was me. I knew what my core, like if I committed to something, there's no one that would show up with more passion and like integrity behind what they were doing and someone that was just very common sense oriented. So I went into things knowing, even if I didn't know something, I could figure it out because I kind of had spent my whole life figuring things out. And I think that's where the confidence comes from. I'm also like the first to be like, I have no idea what this means. Can someone help me? Who's the smarter person? Can I get the smarter person in the room? And can I learn everything from them? Right. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the best place to be. It just matters that you have common sense. You're right. And that you're passionate about it. Yes. Yeah. That's going to get you very far. So what still gets to you? What, what still knocks your confidence today? So I think this whole like bullshit of balance when you're a mom drives me crazy. And I think for me, it's when I think I'm failing my kids, even though they don't. But for me, the biggest guilt and like the hardest times are when I feel like I'm not present enough or I I notice a disconnect between me and them on something. That's really hard. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are starting to come out about that but and like talk about that for the – not maybe for the first time, but like women are just more open about that now, like that there really is no balance. But I always wonder, you know, as someone that's not a mom, like does it even help to hear other people's stories? Because it probably just feels so personal. Like when you're going through it, you just feel like, okay, but they're not disappointing their kids in the same way that I am. Like do you feel lonely in that? I think I did for a while because – especially when you're a new mom and you see like all the bullshit on Instagram and everyone having these like perfect tablescapes with like rosemary wrapped in twine by their perfect linen table. And like, what are you talking about? Like we are in survival mode. Like we're eating on paper plates. I have no idea what I'm feeding (laughs) my kids tonight. Like we're ordering dinner. Like I don't know who people are. And so you're like, am I shitty mom? Like I didn't, I haven't had time to cook them dinner in three days. Right. But like no one does. And so I think that just... (laughs) (laughs) that discrepancy between like people actually sharing what it is to like just hustle and get through being a mom on an everyday basis. Um, That is important because I I think knowing that what you are doing is normal makes you feel better. Definitely. Just knowing that you're not alone, like not necessarily the details, but just knowing that another person feels the way that you do can be validating enough. Yeah. So do you go on Instagram a lot? I am. I really curated what I saw. It's like so basic, but you know, you really start paying attention to like, this makes me happy and this doesn't. Completely. Um, Those are very simple things that you can do for yourself. And I just started muting things that would trigger me or I was leaving me uncomfortable or made me feel shitty about myself. And I was like, why do I gravitate towards these? Yeah. Muting is my favorite. Muting is the best. So now there's like eight people left, but my feet (laughs) makes me so happy. (laughs) It's like your mom, like who's on there? <laughs> Who makes your top eight? Uh, but but do you compare yourself to other women on Instagram? Like, have you muted enough people where they're not even there? Or like, are you more inclined to compare yourself professionally or personally or like physically? That's like the one thing I think I've been fortunate enough not to ever have. I, and part what of that is your secret. I well, I I learned very early that like the more people that inspire you that you surround yourself by, the better you do. And like, Mm -hmm. I'm a voter really is, you know, I think it's like 26 women who work on this campaign, right? They're all pro bono. 
they are the smartest women I've ever known in my life. I like look up to them. I consider them all mentors. And the fact that like we had to sit in a room and, and talk about life and actually have real impact and learn from each other and have fun and have a bottle of wine is the most valuable thing in the entire world. And I think you realize, and, and I think COVID again, reinforced that like our collective well-being and success is tied to each other. So the more people around me succeed, the more I succeed. And the more that we support each other, the more like we all lift up. And so people succeeding is not a trigger for me. I'm like, yes, amazing. Like you buy the beach house, I'm coming over. Like (laughs) win all you want because I'm going to win with you. You need to teach lessons on how to do that because it's hard to be that way. You're so lucky. Yeah, I, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I And I think part of that had to do with my parents, I guess, growing up. Like, they never felt less than because mm-hmm. we had less than. They were always – I didn't even notice we had less than. Like, I, we grew up in L.A. We had the smallest house. Of, we didn't even have a house. We lived in, like, whatever. I didn't even notice. I never was aware. It never – actually resonated with me until I was much older. Like, oh, why didn't we go to my friend's house who had like a giant pool and three stories in an elevator? Like, why were we always hanging out in our like shitty little duplex? Because everyone wanted to come to yours. That's so it was sweet. just fun. And we had all the candy and the snacks and my parents were hilarious. And like, it never dawned on me that like, we could have been at my friend's pool. Like, so I think that was a big part of the way that I was raised. But also, I just I know it sounds corny. I love women. Like I think women can achieve anything in the entire world. I totally world. agree. This woman named Shannon Watts. I don't know if you know her. She's yes, like a, of course. A, you know, someone I've looked up to forever and is, you know, now one of my closest friends and she's a huge mentor to me. And, and very early when I called her when we were just building, I'm a voter. And I was like, Shannon, is it crazy that this team is, you know, 20 women? And mm-hmm. she's like, if you, no. she's like, absolutely not you want to get anything in the entire world done, surround yourself with amazing women. I wholeheartedly agree. And I, that's what really felt right to me as well. And, and, you know, my co-founders are all women and I just, I don't know. I think I've realized the more I am around them, the more I absorb like their Mm -hmm. passion and I don't know. Yeah. So that kind of makes me think of working with friends. Cause I think that's, you know, a hard thing to do in my experience, at least. Maybe it's because I'm bad at making boundaries or something, but being friends with the people that you work with or like working with people that are already your friends, I should say, not when you make friends at work, it can be really challenging. Like, have you found it to be challenging? Because you work with a lot of your friends. Yeah, I work with all my friends, basically. No, I I trust them and I know that they're smarter than me. I'm also a very confrontational person. So I will just call you and be like, you're being a dick. Can you stop? And they're like, ah, okay. <laughs> and we get past it. I think when you let things sit, mm-hmm. that's when there's conflict. But like, you know, my fr- my best friend who I do everything, she's the godmother of my kids. She pulls, I'm a voter with me. She'll call me and be like, you need to calm down. And I'm like, oh, okay, sorry. Um, and, and it just kind of like, it's over and then we're done. But that's so interesting as a perfectionist because I am unfortunately also a perfectionist and sometimes criticism can that's kind of like an achilles heel of mine not professionally as much but like personally you know if someone tells me like calm down i'm like what do you mean i'm calm you know you're okay with criticism i don't look at that that doesn't that doesn't register as criticism to me okay that's like in the moment shit got relayed incorrectly on text or email like it doesn't feel i don't know i don't ever look at that as someone is criticizing. I think if someone was like, I think you're a horrible mother, I would fall apart, you know? Yeah. Nuances of behavior in professional settings, I don't look at criticism. Okay. That's that's a good way to look at it. Did you ever feel pressure? There's some, like, I think a lot of people feel this need to have a through line in their resume, you know, to have like jobs in the same career. Like what would your advice be to people feeling that way? I don't, I think it's this idea that like what you're interested in when you're 22 should be the thing that you're interested in for the rest of your life is crazy. What I did always reflected what I was most passionate about at that point in my life. But like I evolved as a person, right? So I was, you know, really trying to figure out who I was and I was a lawyer and then I really wanted to work in branding and I was an agent and then I really loved fashion. So I worked in fashion and then I loved interiors. So I worked in interiors and then I loved politics. So I did, but that's like, 
you know, I love fashion. And then one day I had a kid and I was like, oh, I don't really care about shoes. I really want sconces. <laughs> you know? And so that was what I, that was my passion. And that was like, tech was so interesting to me. And that's where I wanted to wake up and do every day. And I think that's okay. I think some people do love what they do forever. My brother's a surgeon. He's loved being a surgeon forever. He really genuinely never wants to do anything different. And that works for him. And I am so happy for him. I am just a endlessly curious person. And so the industry to me is like not the important part. It's like what you bring when you show up. And so whatever it is that you're good at, there's no reason you can't do it across a spectrum of jobs. I also weirdly think the fact that I was never from the inside made me a very balanced, objective resource. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think I always looked at everything from a lens of like, is this efficient or not? That's brilliant. I didn't care that like, that's how it's always been done. And I think people get bogged down by like the historical way of doing things. And I didn't even know what they were. So I just showed up and was like, this is how we should do things. It would be so great. And everyone was like, that's not if that's not how we do it. And I'm like, but that's, this is the more efficient way. Let's just do it this way. Right. And everyone probably adopted your way. I have a feeling. Well, I, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I think, I don't know. But it was more just that I actually viewed that lens as beneficial. And, you know, I I think it's really how you see what you bring to the table. What's your relationship with yourself like? Like, do you have negative self-talk and how do you manage it? I mean, I still think everything I do is going to fail, but I don't. I don't think I'm going to fail, but I'm always afraid of it. It's like weird. I, I I know deep down that like I will make anything work because... So committed, and I'm so scrappy, (laughs) but I'm so afraid of it. So I enter. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, no one's gonna like. You know, this is gonna land. It's not gonna work. No one's gonna buy the thing. Whatever it is, right? I start in that place, and the people that I love and surround myself with are like, "Stop! It's gonna be fine." Yes. Weirdly, I I know it like inside, but I let that kind of take over. You know, it was like a year and a half ago. I ran into a good friend of mine in New York, and she just kind of like grabbed me, and she was like take compliments. Mm. And I was like, she's like, don't do that thing that you do. And when everyone says like, you're amazing at something. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I, I didn't realize I did that. So that was like, I think obviously like I'm always learning and unlearning and mm-hmm. we all are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I think there's a lot of that work I probably still have to do. Yeah, all of us. We're always works in progress. But so taking compliments is harder for you than taking criticism. Yes. Interesting. I don't like when things are about me at all. Like I hate a photo shoot. I've always hated it. That's why Bravo (laughs) was so uncomfortable for me. I'm like much more comfortable like executing I never have birthday parties. Literally never. Really? I can't remember the last time I had a birthday dinner. Stop. No way. Yeah. You're just like, no. I don't like it. I don't. I Do people recognize you on the street, like from the show? No. no. I mean, it's been so long. <laughs> I would. <laughs> I also just didn't. I feel like I never, you know, I never did press. I never talked about it. I never yeah, that's why I about didn't it. I just you. never owned it and was like, it'll just go away. I also, when I did it, I was like, I'm going to run for Senate one day. And then what's oh, going to happen? Yes. Meanwhile, like Trump becomes the president. So clearly right. it wasn't as big of an issue as I thought it was, but you know, at the time there really weren't many reality shows. There was like project one way and the Rachel Zoe project and right. Top Chef. So I didn't know what it would do to me and my career. I was really scared. Okay. I think that's a great place to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So is there a specific mistake or rejection that you think, God, I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't experienced that? So I think the biggest mistakes I made were the times I didn't fail quickly, right? Mm. So anytime I knew something was wrong and I didn't listen, when Mm -hmm. I knew my friend sucked, when I knew my relationship wasn't right, when I knew the campaign wasn't working, when I knew I was in the wrong job. And I just was so afraid of disappointing those people and letting them down that I, again, didn't choose myself and let the failure last longer than it should have. And anytime I just was able to fail fast and say like, this isn't working, cut, move on, I think were the times where I was the happiest. I, I think that was that's probably what I would look at as the biggest failures because they happen both professionally and emotionally right? Um, and personally. And so, yeah, it took me a very long time to, 
to learn how to stand up for myself in those situations. Mm-hmm. Was there a, like a specific mistake, like professionally that you remember where you just felt like, God, my world is over. And then, you know, obviously you know, it didn't turn out to be. I, you know, I, one of my summers at a, like when I was in law school, I summered at a different law firm, not the one I ended up practicing at. And the, you know, the managing partner there was horrible to mm. me. Mm. And just such like a misogynistic, not nice person. And <laughs> I don't know why it took me as long as it did to, to leave and say like, I don't know. I don't even know why I'm here. Like, I don't need to be here to have another job with a law firm that I love. Like this is such a waste of my time. And I'm still mad at myself that I didn't immediately just be like, fuck off and leave. Right. Do you think there was a part of you that like was afraid to go back to your friends and family and say, I left this job or... Was it fear of the unknown? No, I think I was, I thought I was supposed to please those people. I looked at it as like, I'm not performing the way I'm supposed to perform in this situation and he's not happy and I'm not like doing my best at this thing. And I like got down on my situation and like, I didn't know I could leave. I didn't even know there was an option to be like, oh wait, this is dumb. I don't want to be here. Right, right. And I really let myself stay in a really, really horrible environment for a long time. And that Mm -hmm. feels like a major bummer. I also think like everything happens for a reason, but anytime I did something because everyone around me was like, this is the smart thing to do. And Mm -hmm. I didn't do it because I was really passionate about it. Those were the things that never really pan out the way they should have. Again, everything, like everything I did, I'm so happy I did because it led me to the other thing and I learned something from it. And I don't ever think I would be where I am today without all of those experiences. So I wouldn't do them, but I just wish I had done I think this whole idea of like living this very calculated life where everything has like a reason because you think of it's going to do some like, and so hard seeing all these people that live on this endless cycle of like social climbing and like oh. climbing. I'm like, there is nothing at the top. Like you can climb every social ladder. There is literally nothing at the top of the ladder. Right. Like it's, it's a wheel. Like you're just going to keep spinning for the rest of your life. Yes. And I, I, I think those moments where I was like, oh, well, I'm going to just do this thing that I don't want to do for a year and a half because it's going to get me this other thing. Those were mm-hmm. terrible decisions. Yeah. So like no regrets really, but just like, why didn't I follow my heart and my gut when yeah. they told me to leave? And did that, you know, manifest itself also personally, like in relationships? Did you stay in relationships longer than you needed so to? Did you stay in longer. friendships? Yes. And friendships. I didn't know I could like not be friends with someone. I didn't know that like, oh, we went to high school and elementary school together and our friends are parents and you're really not nice to me. And then I could just not be your friend. It took me a very long time to be okay saying like some relationships are just meant to be relationships for that period of time. Yeah. We talk a lot about friendship breakups on this show just because I think it's one of those taboo weird topics that like everyone goes through or you should go through if you grow, you know, like you should grow out of relationships. What was a hard friendship breakup that you went through? You don't have to give me like the person's name or specifics, but just generally. Yeah, it really was a friend that I had been friends with forever. And I think we just had very, very different values. And she was so critical of how I was living my life as a working mother. And every Mm -hmm. time I was around her, she was like, well, who's going to be your kid tonight? And I was like, I can't do this. At some point, I was just like, look, being a stay-at-home mom is the hardest job in the entire world. I have zero judgment for you. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I don't need to be judged by you. Like, Hell no. My kids are great and they're thriving and I love the shit out of them. And the last thing I need is anyone else making me feel like. I'm, Amen. Like, so I, that relationship, I just, every day was, I had so much guilt and just like anger. And I was like, why am I doing this? Right. That mom shame is horrible. I really wish moms would stop with it. Yeah, I've heard that mean girls turn into like those mean moms. Like the mean girls in high school, like they turn out to be the moms that mom shame you. I just don't fundamentally understand. Like, life is hard. Like, yeah. there's a lot of shit to figure out. And, like, why anybody would choose to make you feel worse about the decisions that you made. Like, you clearly made this decision with, like, your partner in life or not or yourself or your family or your therapist. I don't know. But, like, who the fuck are you to sit here right. and tell somebody that they made the right or wrong decision, especially when they didn't ask you? Like, exactly the strangest thing to me ever. And it's, like, these little, like drive-bys, you know, where they're just like, they walk past you and just drop this like little nuclear bomb on you. Like haven't seen you around here in a while or like you've been busy with work, like just like terrible things to say to someone. Yeah. Like what, 
Why? Yeah. It's, it's so horrible. Unnecessary. No, it's horrible. So let's talk about imposter syndrome because people are really wanting to talk about that. And it's obviously we all feel it at some point or maybe you don't. Some people are blessed. So <laughs> when did you feel imposter syndrome the most severely? Definitely. Like, I, I think when we came to America, mm. I really just didn't understand like what was happening around me. I had no idea how to behave also just like the circumstances of what, by the time we left Iran, there was a war. We had like bombshell bombings every day. I mean, I just grew up in like such insane circumstances there. And then we went to Italy and we had no idea what we were doing. And my wow. dad was in France and we had to sleep on someone's couch and then come. And my mother, it was like, by, like by the time we like got it together and then you're just like dropped in New York city, which is the scary place when you don't know where you are and you don't speak English and you have no idea what we're doing. And you're just like, okay, Godspeed, go figure it out. I mean, that is, by no means doesn't mean I didn't have, you know, my family and relatives and, you know, highest, which is the organization that helped us get here. And they help, you know, Jewish families that are refugees resettle around the world and they helped us find a school and they were so amazing and so helpful. And I would literally do anything for them, but it's, it's a lot to just kind of be thrown into and to walk into a school where like no one looks like you and you don't really understand. It just was so foreign what are the repercussions of that that you find are still getting to you today? Like, how did it translate to your adulthood? Well, I mean, I think I have this very hard line empathy for immigrants and refugees. And I think that was a lot of what I responded to with, you know, the child separation. I think absolutely seeing a lot of the anti Semitism the last two weeks was really hard because, you know, it was such a personal experience for my family having to leave our homeland where ancestors had been for thousands of years. Right. I think there are certain things that are just very, very triggering that I remember. On the imposter syndrome side, I don't know. I I think it was it was the beginning of a very long journey of mm. just, you know, trying to live a life of getting through things. Interesting. I really just looked at everything as like these little short cohorts of whatever it was. And I just needed to get through them. And I was like, if I get through them, it's going to be great. Mm -hmm. And I just kept living that way. And I was never actually living. Like I was never enjoying any of the things that I was doing. I was just, whether they were good or bad, even great things. Yeah. I had adopted this, like a vacation was like, okay, I just have to get through it. I have to pack. I have to wow. go. I have to survive. We have to come back. The kids have to be safe. Like everyone has to have yeah. food and like uh, all the things have to be organized. And then like, we're going to come home and I'm going to chill. And I'm like, I just went on the most beautiful vacation. And all I was going to do <laughs> yes. was get through the Isn't vacation. That interesting. And I, and it was so long and it just, I was in that cycle forever. And I never really knew how to step out of it and be like, oh, this is it. I'm not trying yeah. to get anywhere like I'm here this is the I destination yeah. wow yeah how did you, like were there small ways that you started to like live how did you really start to allow yourself to exhale basically one of my friends told me to wear like a scrunchie like a tight rubber band around yeah. my arm and like when I would feel myself just being in that like hold my breath get through it I would literally forcibly like snap my arm and force myself to be like be present and just enjoy this moment. Turn off your phone, disconnect. Yeah. Sometimes you need like a physiological or like some, or even just say it out loud, like stop, you know, that's what I do. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So imposter syndrome professionally, we felt that, you know, when you started, I am a voter, you were kind of like, okay, I've never done this before. I think you felt like that you were put in a lot of situations where you didn't know that world, you know, like fashion or, you know, did you ever feel imposter syndrome when you were dropped in those new careers? I think it was a different kind of imposter syndrome. I knew that I should be there because I I wanted to be there and I was going to work really hard to earn it. And I was there for like the integrity and the passion to, to, to thrive. So I, it wasn't that it's, it's like such a specific nuance of like, but like, what if everyone realizes I'm not supposed to be here? And so I found myself playing into scenarios to emulate belonging. Like at one of the companies I worked at, there were a lot of times when people did things that I really disagreed with. Right. And it was like such a boys club. And I would find myself like laughing 
And I, those are the most, those are the only moments in my life I regret where I just was like, why didn't I just tell him he was an asshole? Why didn't I just say like, that's not cool. Don't do that. But I was trying to like, I was like, okay, I guess I'm like working at a fraternity company. I should just get along with these guys. And I think those are like the minor nuances that I, I guess I regret, but it was never about my ability to perform. Yeah. I think all of us, everyone listening, myself included, like we all have those moments where we're like, why did I laugh along with that? Why didn't I confront the person when they said that slight remark to me? And it's so frustrating, but I do think it's an age thing. I feel like with age, you just get more confident in confrontation and standing up for yourself or not assimilating. Yeah. And I I think it's understanding why those moments are important, not just to you, but to your community and your colleagues and your peers and your boss. It's not, it's not just even about you. It's funny. Our first, you know, on my podcast, the first episode was with Glennon Doyle, who I'm obsessed with. Oh my God. I'm obsessed with her. You know, Glennon's whole thing was like talking about, you know, activism. It was, she's like, activism is equally telling the person that they said the racist thing. It's standing up to the person at the bus stop and being like, that wasn't cool. It's, showing up as an activist, like if you think you're an activist or you think you're like standing up for your community and you care, then like that, those little things are not little. Like that is how you actually like change hearts and change community and help people recognize like things they don't even probably know about themselves. Right. And I, and that was really impactful for me because I was like, oh, it's okay if I disappoint this person. It's okay if I hurt their feelings. I need, I need to do the right thing, not just for myself, but for everyone. And that goes beyond being an activist. You know, that's even in like your personal relationships, creating boundaries that make people uncomfortable or whatever. You have a lot of cause-driven work, obviously, you know, and you fight for a lot of marginalized people. And, you know, there's a lot of need-based work that you do. When you're having your own personal problems or life gets in the way or your daughter or your husband are you really good at compartmentalizing or like, is, does it ever just become too much? What are your outlets? What are your practices for balancing that? I'm very good at compartmentalizing. You probably have to be, right? Yes. But I think it started not for not great reasons, right? It started right. with just being able to like compartmentalize trauma to just to thrive. Absolutely. But I, I really, it's like, for me, it's my relationships. It's like my, my, I couldn't do anything without my husband. I couldn't do anything without my best friends. I couldn't like, if I didn't have those support systems where I could just call and say all the things and know I wasn't being judged. Um, knowing that I'm like in safe places is really important for me. Yeah. And do you ever excuse yourself from cross-driven work if something's not going on at home or is it pretty much like you're able to just trudge forward? No, I never stop. You I never can't. stop. <laughs> no, I can't. Um, it's too important to me. It makes me too happy. Yeah. Never the source of my pain. Right. Because it's like effective and it's efficient. So it's also like solving whatever it is that's making me sad. Uh, the hardest thing for me is feeling like the pain of something and not feeling like I'm doing anything about it or I don't know what to do about that's it. That's true. You're actively doing something to hopefully change that. So it's like yeah. less sad and more empowering in that way. Yeah. Of course, there are sad moments. Um, you, <laughs> like very. <laughs> do you ever struggle with placing like too much self worth in your career? All the time. Yeah, I always thought it defined me. I thought that was like the only way that I was. Do you still feel that way? No, but I think having kids is, was the only way I was going to understand that that wasn't real. Right. So you have one kid or two? Two girls. Two girls. Oh, that's fun. They say that's the happiest rough. families are two girls. I read that in the New York Times, but who knows if that's true. I did read that too. It is. Yeah. It's an amazing place to be. Yeah. Like we have such a great little thing. It's so nice. It's so nice. I want to ask you one more question about that. What's something about motherhood that surprised you? Oh, wow. Everything. I I, I don't think I was at all. I I had no idea what it was going to be. Yeah. It's funny. I went into it because you're like everything else was like, this is the phase that I'm supposed to do this. And this is the time. And I was like planning and and it just shook my world. It was like your insides are living outside (laughs) and the, the like love and the challenge. Mm -hmm. It's so hard. It's so hard. And it's so fulfilling at the same time. And it's like such an incredibly 
empowering and insane responsibility. Like I'm always like, I can't, I can't wrap my head around the fact that like I get to keep these kids and they're just mine and no one takes them away. And like, I'm completely responsible for shaping who they, that is insane to wrap my head around. Yeah. Yeah. It's even like for me who doesn't have kids, like it's mind boggling that one day my kids will be talking about like me in therapy, you know, hopefully not, but it's like very weird that like they're yours to like build and screw up. And like, you know what I mean? It's, it's a lot of pressure I would imagine. Yes. Okay. We're going to take a break and we'll be back. Now we are going to go into these, you know, three little rapid questions. Oh boy. (laughs) No, I swear they're easy. (laughs) They're easier than. (laughs) Okay. Okay. What's a topic or concept you wish more women, either in your industry or in general, were more open about with each other? Oh my God. So many things. I would say infertility and like how hard it is and that everyone does it and it's totally normal to have IVF. And I had IVF with both kids. I really wish that I had known other people had done that and that it was normal and that I wasn't a complete failure because I couldn't, I mean, I just, it's such an important thing for other moms to understand when they're, when they're going through that process. And yeah, I just just wish more people would talk about it. A hundred percent because you're being told that your body doesn't work, you know, and you're like, there can be a lot of shitty doctors that say shitty things to you. Friends say shitty things to you can be super lonely. And even if you have a great partner, like at the end of the day, it's only your body going through it. So it's like, it can be lonely making. What's a way in which you're working on yourself these days? I'm trying to exercise, which I suck at doing, but I really am trying to do that. And I'm really trying to set boundaries with my phone. Like I really have hours and moments where it's like on airplane mode and it's gone and just also just changing my behavior with my phone. Yeah. It's so sick. I need to, I need to get to that point because like, I can't even remember the last time I wasn't on my phone for hours or hour. It's it's so terrible. Yeah. What's something that people follow you on Instagram would be surprised to know? I immediately was going to say how tragic what I watch is every day. (laughs) I don't, I mean, I don't know. I guess that probably, I mean, there's so many things. Just like what a goofy nerd I am. Yeah, that might answer this question, but what's the most off-brand thing about you? I mean, that I eat like a (laughs) nine-year-old. I do too. I'm a kid's menu person for life. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I like don't and is it yeah forever like chicken nuggets like pizza that kind of stuff or like yeah and like flaming hot Cheetos and Lucky Charms and like yes my happiest places oh me too okay so what's your Instagram handle where can people find you what have you got coming up my Instagram handle is Mandana Dayani it's very creative um, <laughs> I would love for anyone to just follow I'm a voter support I'm a voter we have a big campaign coming up called Register Friend Day, July 25th. We did it last year and it was so fun. So anyone that wants to participate in that, that would be great. Yes. I think that's it. I have no idea. I'll I'll plug everything else you forgot. Okay. (laughs) And that's it. Thank you so much. This was so fun. I feel like I learned so much from you. I loved every minute of this. Thank you. This was awesome. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so, so much for coming to hang out. I hope you loved this episode as much as I did. And I'll see you guys back here next week. But before you go, I have to remind you and beg you for a second to please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You have no idea how much it helps. Like if you love any other podcast, do it for them too. It just makes such a difference and, you know, helps us get to season three. So please rate, review, and subscribe, and I'll see you back here next week. Bye.